NCF, it's great to be with you today. My name is Peter and I'm coming to you from my home. And like many of you, I'm sure we've been spending a lot more time at home through this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and if you're like me, I guess life can feel rather cyclical these days. You know, I wake up, I uh, log into work, I eat, you know, maybe I might take a shower. But then it's the same cycle over and over again. This mundane cycle that we live through day after day in this pandemic. Uh, but today our text reminds us that no matter how mundane things might feel now during the pandemic, or no matter how mundane things might feel like in life in general, that God does not look at our life as something mundane. That God has carefully made, carefully crafted your life. All our hurts, all our mistakes, all our triumphs, our experiences, to make us who we are today. And as we move forward, I believe that there is a purpose, there is a goal that's set out for us to seek, to follow, and to walk into. Right, so from God's perspective, our lives have meaning. So today, let's look at our text and think through what it means to live into a life of meaning. We're in Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. This is the word of the Lord. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. So, looking at our text, two things I want to bring about um, in regards to living a life with meaning. First, a meaningful life loses self. And second, a meaningful life is given to others. So first, a meaningful life loses self. You know, if you're like me, you know, at my worst, I can feel really cynical about life. And especially at these times when life feels so cyclical as well. You know, I'm reading Ecclesiastes again, and Ecclesiastes was written by a person who identifies himself as a preacher. Presumably this was Solomon. And he speaks a truth about life that in one sense is really spot on. He says that no matter what you set out to accomplish, no matter how good you are or how wise you become, at the end of the day, you share the same fate as the fool or the kind of person whose life didn't amount to much. You live, you die. And that's it, right? And so his conclusion, he says he hated life. The pursuit of all these accomplishments, the pursuit of wisdom, it's, it's vanity. It's meaningless. It's like a vapor in the air. But that's certainly not the tone of Paul's letter here to the Philippians. I mean, on the one hand, I guess Paul could have looked at the circumstances and been all down about it. He could have said, oh, this is all vanity, vanity. Why? Because he's in prison when he's writing to the Philippians. And no, day, no doubt, you know, while in prison, day by day, it, it feels like a grind. He's in chains. His freedom is restricted. He can't come and go where he pleases. 
And it's plain to see, you know, what every commentator points out, that in spite of all these things, in spite of all the struggles, Paul is happy. Paul rejoices. We see that word twice in verse 18. He says, in that I rejoice. And yes, I will rejoice. And he'll say it multiple times again throughout the letter. But why does Paul rejoice? Well, two reasons, continuing into verse 9. He says, first, you know, for some reason, because word has gotten out that Paul's in prison, that Paul's in chains, somehow this has caused other people to become more bold about proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is going out. But Paul doesn't care whether it's done for false motives or for true motives. The fact of the matter is, the name of Jesus is being proclaimed and in that he rejoices. That's the first reason. The second reason is that he believes that the prayers of the Philippians will turn out for his deliverance. That word deliverance, commentators are a little torn as to what that really means. Is he talking about like a literal deliverance from prison? Where after he expects to be released, um, that's certainly, you can infer that, you know, as you read on in Philippians, especially in verse 26, it sounds like he expects to see the Philippians again. Or a second interpretation, maybe Paul is not that sure. And so he's not talking about a literal deliverance, but maybe at the end of his prison term, he's about to be executed. And that brings about what the ultimate deliverance, where he gets his soul can go to heaven and see his creator face to face. Literal, figurative, or maybe there's a third option. And maybe Paul left it intentionally ambiguous. And the reason why commentators say this is because in verse 20 says that his hope is that Christ is honored in his body regardless, whether by life or by death. But the point I want to draw out is, um, where does Paul draw the strength to rejoice in spite of all these bad things that are happening to him, in spite of the negative circumstances that are impacting his life? presumably even at the prospect of death. And for us to understand where Paul is drawing the strength from, we need to understand Paul's relationship with Jesus Christ in the first place. For Paul, Jesus wasn't someone that he knew from a distance. Paul, For Paul, you know, Jesus wasn't some nice teacher or a, a set of principles. No, who was Jesus to Paul? Well, remember Paul was a Pharisee. Now, I know in Sunday school we're trained to believe that Pharisees were bad people, but really, you know, you go back to Jesus' time, Pharisees were good people. They were scrupulous people. They were righteous people, holy people, people that you see at church who seem to have really given their lives for the cause of the faith. And these were religious people at the time who saw the Jewish faith in decline, and they thought the path back to God was through a strict adherence to the law. That's who the Pharisees were. But remember Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees. You know, Jesus was recognized as a rabbi, as a teacher. And for some reason, Jesus would, would, would draw all these sinners, these unclean people, outcasts. Right? They would go to him and Jesus would accept them. He would validate them. He would say, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees saw this. They saw this about Jesus and they thought this was absolutely scandalous. Right? They thought, you know, God could never accept sinners like this. God could never accept the unclean. Right? And for Pharisees, they thought they had things figured out. They had these rigorous traditions. They had these cleansing rituals that they thought kept them above the law. 
They had like records of accomplishments, memorizing loads of scripture. They, th they thought they had this ledger all set up so that when they present it before God, they can say, God, look at all that I've done. You will definitely accept me. But Jesus would call the Pharisees out. You know, on the one hand, he did commend their scruples. On the one hand, he did recognize their righteousness, at least externally. But on the other hand, he said that if you think your righteousness, if you think your accomplishments, if you think your adherence to the law makes you a worthy person, even worthy enough to be acceptable before God, you're wrong. It's a failure to see the truth of who you really are. And so Jesus would say things like, you know, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will enter the kingdom of heaven before you, Pharisees. Why? Because these were people in that society had shunned. These were people that knew that they were nobodies. These were people who knew their place. They knew that already they were unworthy. And so they clung to Jesus because really they had nowhere else to go. And Jesus would deliver. He would heal the sick. He would heal the blind, the lame. He would say, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has made you well. He would totally discredit everything that guys like Paul had given his life to. For Paul and the Pharisees, Jesus was a threat. In Paul's eyes, Jesus was a heretic. And so Paul was on a mission to destroy Christianity. But something happened one day that would change Paul's life forever. And it's quite a dramatic story. You can read it for yourself in Acts chapter 9. He's on his way to Damascus to destroy Christians. And he's knocked off his horse. He, he hears a voice of Jesus and he's blinded by this bright light. But what I want to bring out is the fruit of what Paul understood about Jesus after this encounter. Suddenly, everything that he thought mattered about his own life, about Paul's own life, suddenly didn't. Like, for example, you know, if you go forward to Philippians chapter 3, he lists basically a resume of all his accomplishments, of all the things that he's done right. According to the tradition, according to the law, he was blameless. But he concludes in verse 7, well, whatever gain I had, whatever I had accomplished, whatever people could recognize me for, all this I count as loss for the sake of Christ. It's as if he says, all this time I thought life had meaning if I could add things to myself. If I could create my own universe and add to my list of accomplishments. But Jesus had so touched Paul to the core of his being. He opened his eyes to the truth. He showed him what true glory, true meaning is. He said it's not found in making something for yourself. It's found in total surrender. It's found in losing yourself in Jesus Christ. It's found in the refining experience of suffering. It's found in the embrace of a love that Paul says surpasses all knowledge. It's found when you're united to your maker who knows you better than you know yourself, who has a purpose for you. So in response, Paul gave his life to Jesus and he would never be the same. He lost himself in Christ and in Christ he found himself on the other side. You know, at the end of the day, what does it mean to, to find yourself? You know, what is the essence of our humanity? You know, I was watching uh, Frozen 2 the other day, and the climactic song in Frozen 2 is that song, Show Yourself. 
And I'm sure if your kids or if you love Frozen, you know that song, and you can you can hear it in, in your mind right now as I talk about it. You know, Elsa, the struggle that Elsa has in Frozen One and in Frozen Two is, you know, she wants to know why she's different. She wants to know that why she has all these magical powers. And in the beginning of Frozen Two, you know, Elsa is you know hanging out at her at her uh, at her thing, and you know she hears this voice. She hears this voice in the form of a song, you know, ah, and she follows this voice, you know, ah, and it leads her to this, like, magical island, and she's all alone in this giant room, and she says to the voice that keeps singing to her, she says, show yourself, I'm dying to meet you, are you the one I've been waiting for my whole life? And suddenly as the song progresses and, you know, the music gets louder, you can hear her mom kind of join in in the song. And she's counseling Elsa, right? And towards the end of the song, her mom gives Elsa the big reveal. Elsa, I'm about to tell you the big secret about your life. She says, come my darling, homeward bound. You are the one that you've been waiting for all of your life. And it's this dramatic moment where... Elsa is in tears and she's finally able to understand the answer to who she is and why she is. And you know, like building up to the song, you know, you know, Elsa's in tears and maybe I might have been in tears a little bit. You know, when I heard that line, you are the one you've been waiting for, I was sort of left a little disappointed. Because here's the truth, you know, in one sense, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is right. You know, whatever you do, whatever you can accomplish in your own little universe, all this amounts to to vanity. If the best you can find in your own life is inside of you, it dies when you die. So do all your plans, your riches, your accomplishments. They all die with you. And look, as long as God is not in the picture in this life, this is the reality for everybody. Think about it for a second. Apart from God, the universe is rather indifferent. There's no rhyme or reason for anything. Things just are. And if we are products of an indifferent universe, you know, our experiences are nothing more than really a a bunch of chemical reactions in our heads. Is life really good? Or is good really good? Right? Is there really such a thing as evil? No. Things just are. Right? No matter how you feel about them, they just are. No matter how what you think about people who don't wear face masks, right? no matter what you think about what happened to George Floyd, or the Holocaust, or genocide in general around the world, or the exploitation of women and children, your emotions are just chemical reactions inside your head. Things just are. And in a short time, these chemical reactions, the, the structure of your body and your, your physical physiology, it all comes to an end. We all die. This is the truth. We're all vulnerable to death. And none of us have the power to undo it. Once we were on top of the food chain, and now we're just fertilizer on the ground. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, does that sit well with you? you Does that do justice to who you are? Does that do justice for your capacity to love, to choose, to fight for what's right? To help others. Now let's highlight the biblical reality that God reveals to us in his word about this life. From the day that we're born until the day that we die, our lives are on one of two trajectories. One is the broad way, 
that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 7, the, the wide road. This is the way of the world. It's the way we all tend to go. It's the way we want to go, left to our own devices, without thinking through the consequences of what that really means. But Jesus tells us that there's also a narrow path. And this narrow path is not an intuitive path. It's a difficult path. It's a path that not many people find. But when you find it, it's like what Jesus says. It's like a a man who finds treasure hidden in a field. And once he finds that treasure, he, he, he buries it and he sells everything he has to have that field, to buy that field, so that treasure can be his very own possession. This is the path that Paul had found. Or you can say this is the path that found Paul. Right? How do we get on this path? You know, there's this verse in Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus says, I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. And, and you know, you, you read about it, he says, I've come to set father against son, you know, mother against daughter. And, you know, it just struck me as an odd passage, a little maybe uncharacteristic of Jesus. You know, but sitting with it for a little bit, I think I might understand what Jesus is talking about. You know, peace on earth. In other words, I think he's saying, you know, I I didn't come to let things go the way they are. I didn't come to, you know, kind of go with the pattern, go with the the waves of this world. And really, the message of Christianity is primarily not an adjustment to the way things are, right? Christianity is not tweaking your life or giving your life advice and, and, and making your life better, right? Not, not on the surface, at least, right? He says, I've come with a sword. I, I've come to cut against the grain of that wide path, against the grain of the curse. I've come to buy you back. I've come to heal you from this twisted tendency to flee from me, from this twisted tendency to run away from me. I've come to bring you back to where you were meant to be. I've come to reconnect you to the source of all life. I've come to reconnect you to the one who can give you true freedom. And doing so, it's disruptive. I've come to bring peace and not a sword. I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. Paul found himself by losing himself in Jesus Christ. You see it in the way he talks about his own life. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if you've gone to church for any length of time, you know, this is a verse that might be very familiar to you. It's such an easy verse to memorize. But let's be honest, it's a really difficult verse to say with any meaning. And why is that? Because it's not real if it comes by looking inside of you and trying harder. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's not the way to make it an authentic, true confession of the state of your heart. No, to say this with any amount of sincerity, it requires us to, to step out in faith, to entrust our entire lives to Christ himself, and to see for ourselves how sweet, how safe, And how satisfying his presence truly is. Jesus, you are the one I've been waiting for my entire life. Take me and let me find myself in you. Paul embraced this gift that Jesus had given him. What about you? Is Jesus calling you? Pray to him now. You know, pray to him while this video is rolling. 
Tell Jesus, you know, I want to know you the way Paul knew you. I want to rejoice. I want to be able to rejoice in spite of circumstances. I want to experience life to the full. Help me to lose my life in you. So that's the first point, that a meaningful life comes from losing self. That brings us to the second point about a meaningful life. A meaningful life is given to others. Now there's a pastor named Andy Stanley and he says something like this. He says, purpose is found when you become a resource to others. And certainly Paul, arguably one of the most influential figures in all of history, had lived this out. We see this in verses 22 to 24. Right? But you know, you read verses 22 to 24, and it's clear that Paul seems a little conflicted, actually. He says, on the one hand, you know, more to our first point, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. But he says, on the other, God is keeping me here on the earth for your account, on your account. In other words, if I'm alive by the mercy of God, I am here for the benefit of others. You know, I've heard several pastors say this, something along the lines that, you know, almost everyone becomes a Christian through someone else, through another person. You know, it's rare that, you know, people have a divine intervention moment, and that's the moment that they become, you know, God followers or Christ followers. No, it's usually through the ministry of another person. And I think that's true in my life as well. You know, I remember going to church as a little kid ever since I was about four years old. You know, I'm thankful for my elementary school pastors. I'm thankful for that one pastor who went at lengths to talk about faith, even though, you know, he had a Korean accent and this whole time I thought he was talking about his face. I'm thankful for my youth pastors who faithfully, faithfully kept preaching on the word. And as an adult, uh, I'm thankful for friends, friends who've walked alongside me. You know, in college, I was on the verge of kind of giving up on Christianity, giving up on the faith, but it's through the, the outreach of one friend who really encouraged me to go to this Christian conference, maybe not for the, the greatest of intentions, but he dragged me along, and God would use this conference to bring me back to him. And after that conference, there was another friend, he was a graduate student, and he would walk alongside me, we'd talk about the Bible together. We talk about, you know, we, we, we struggle with questions about the existence of God. And really, it's those times, it's those conversations, it's because people like that have invested in me that I've become who I am and want to follow Jesus. You know, parents, you are in a unique position. It's clear from a biblical point of view that the faith is a family affair. You are shaping your children to be the next generation of, you know, lights of this world, salts of the earth. Don't waste these moments, you know, especially now as they're spending a lot more time during the pandemic. You know, live out your faith. Show them what it means to process your faith in the midst of important decisions. Or live out your faith even when you're fighting, even when you're disagreeing. To wrap up this point, notice this giving of life also goes the long haul. It goes the distance. Let's look at verses 25. You know, it's just convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. A life given to others doesn't just come in bursts. It's not like, you know, winning a lottery where, you know, it's one big thing in one shot. No, it's consistent. 
it incrementally grows. It perseveres. It, it goes the distance. You're in it for the long haul. And if you are in it for the long haul, you need to know yourself. You need to love yourself. And of course, you need to take care of yourself. Right? You need rhythms of devotion, of rest, of dwelling in the presence of God. You're not a doormat for everybody else. Right? But you do these things for the purpose of being able to give your life to others. Paul is saying, as long as I'm here by the mercy of God, it's there, my life is there for a reason. It's there to serve a purpose. Life is to be drawn from Jesus Christ so I can give it away for the benefit of others. So as we come to a close, let's summarize. The key to a meaningful life, a fulfilling life, is to lose yourself in Jesus, your maker. And out of this new self, to give your life for the benefit of others. You know, there are people around you that God has put around you in His providence. And because of how God has shaped your life, because of your past, because of your wounds, because of your failures, your triumphs, and your experiences, you're uniquely equipped to minister to that person. And I assure you, just as God placed them in and around your life, they are waiting for you to rise, for you to take a stand, and for you to give of your life for their benefit. Grace and peace to you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, I pray that these words would bring your people towards you, that they would know that the key to living a true life of meaning and fulfillment is to lose themselves in you. And as they do, would you, would you fill us up so that we can give our lives for the benefit of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.